Hi, I'm Nick, and this is the Niche Aviation Podcast. Today I speak to Charles Tabner. Charles is the founder and chairman of FlyLogix. FlyLogix specialize in beyond the line of sight unmanned aviation. Their drone operates using a combination of the Iridium satellite network and artificial intelligence. This allows them to fly entirely remotely for nearly 500 kilometers. FlyLogix use their drone for methane detection, oil spill response, and surveillance. There are also currently in early stages of logistics testing. If you're looking to learn more about a world leader in unmanned aviation, then this is the episode for you. Charles, many thanks for joining me. It's really great to have you on. Just to start, actually, it'd be really interesting just to get a bit about your background. Thanks very much, Nick. So I originally have a, a master's degree in aeronautical engineering from Cambridge, and I started my career, I spent my whole career in technology development. I started my career at a business called Cambridge Consultants. Um, and actually, that was probably the sort of first genesis a long, long time ago of FlyLogics, because uh, at the time I was there, we were developing all the hardware for the Iridium satellite network. So that was the sort of most like the first building block of, of FlyLogics, didn't realize it at the time. Um, I then worked um, for about five years for a venture capital company focused in energy uh, investments um, through the financial crisis and, and, and the last cycle of, 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 of sort of excitement around clean energy, interestingly. Um, and then more recently, I built a, a subsea pipe business um, from from the point where we were just a handful of people in a in a small serviced office up to a large provider of high end carbon fiber pipe to the subsea industry. It's a company called Magma, um, and through that, I got involved in 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 various different activities in in oil and gas, including the Technology Leadership Board, which was the the UK's. Uh, response to sort of coordinate technology investment into the offshore energy space, um, and 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 it's sort of that journey um, that has has brought me to FlyLogics over the years. And so you've got quite a unique background there. And so there's a couple of things that I'm sure we'll touch on later. But within that, what was the moment where you found out there was a problem that you need to solve with FlyLogic, or what was the moment you decided to start FlyLogic? Yeah, so it was at the time, uh, it was about five, six years ago, it was the time I was on the technology leadership board. And and we, in, in those meetings, we, you know, we had the heads of- This was of the oil and gas. Gas, that's right. Leadership. Yeah, that's yeah. right. We had the heads of, of, of many of the big uh, oil and gas operators in the United Kingdom um, and some of the leading technology companies in the space. And, and one of the topics at the time was always drones. You know, people would talk about drones. And and I just remember sitting in one of those meetings where someone explained to me how we were using drones and we were loading the crew to fly them into a helicopter along with the drone and we were flying them out to the platform and then we were getting all that kit out. And the bit that really sort of made me realise there was something interesting going on here was I was told that the lithium-ion batteries couldn't go on the helicopter, so they were coming out on a ship separately. <laughs> and I thought, I thought... You know what? What is going on here? The whole point of these systems is that they're they're able to fly. You know, you must be able to do that. And and I got into sort of several conversations where we were just talking about it must be possible. And people kept telling me, "Oh, well, you can't do it. Regulation can't be done. Regulation." 
and and that was the genesis of it. I was very lucky at the time. I knew someone at CAA and we talked about it. And he said to me, no, you, you know, there are regulations in place to do that. The military do stuff like that, but you've got to kind of follow the regulations and not fight them. And and that was the genesis. It was essentially it was essentially a bet actually with one of the oil and gas operators, the chief exec of the operator at the time, which is they said, oh, you can't do that. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, give us give us a you know a one pound contract, and I'll show you we can do it. And we did we did our first operation in 2017. Um, out to a Centrica, then Centrica facility in in Morecambe Bay. That's incredible. Yeah. So if you just give a quick overview of what Flylogix is, and then I'll drill into a couple of the things which I find quite interesting, which makes you very different from your competitors or how it was done before. Yeah. So 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 Flylogix is all about uh, delivering long range unmanned aviation services and 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 to reduce the cost, the risk, and the environmental impact. Of delivering those services, and what I've just described to you is an application of that. You know, the ser- the service we provide is much broader, um, but but you have to focus on individual applications for individual customers to actually show that. And and so I think if we touch on a couple of things there, which is quite interesting. So first of all, whereas before you were talking about them sitting on uh, an oil rig, for example, and and flying a drone and seeing it, the thing that makes you different is the f- well. The first thing is the beyond visual line of sight. Yeah, absolutely. So the the sort of the fundamental thing that we we are just entirely focused on, Nick, is is the is operating uh, an unmanned aircraft beyond line of sight, and and that sets you up for a certain type of services. So, in my commentary about about. Um, small drones and things. Absolutely, there are loads of services where that makes sense. Where you 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 get one out of the box, someone flies it who can see it. What we're focused on is you can also see there are a whole range of services where actually being able to take off from one location, move hundreds of kilometres to another location, do the service, and then come back has real advantage. And it is fundamentally different. It requires a different set of skills, different differences in regulation, differences in technology, and that's what we do. And how did you go about actually solving that problem there initially, the beyond visual line of sight? Yeah, so it, it, it's kind of iterative thing, isn't it? Like all technology development is an iterative thing, which is at the point you realise that there's a customer who might want that, you come back to the question of, well, how would I deliver that? And I was very lucky at the time. Uh, I found a, an individual who had done a lot of work historically um, in the military on this and had some really interesting thoughts around that. And we got together uh, and, and he, he developed an aircraft that, that, that you would describe as sort of a minimum viable product, a, a product that would allow you to meet the regulations and do a very simple beyond visual line of sight. And, and, and that iteration has continued because what, you know, what we've done is we, we did the very simplest operation in Morecambe Bay, very simplest sensor package. And what that did is it got our customers thinking and our customers suddenly realized, okay, this is possible. And they started saying, well, this would be more important than that. You start to say, right, okay, well, how far do you want us to fly? How often? What weather conditions? And, and, and you know, there's that natural back and forward and you refine the operation. Yeah. And so that first flight, what exactly were you doing? So we flew 88 kilometers from uh, from Blackpool Airport, we flew out to to uh, a facility. It was part of Centrica's facilities in Morecambe Bay, I think DP3, which is an unmanned 
unmanned um, platform in Morecambe Bay. Uh, and we just had a, an infrared camera on. So we recorded infrared imagery. And, and interestingly, it was the thing that people were interested in was gas detection. So it was a more amorphous description of what we do today, which was sort of interested in gas detection. And that's that's what we did as our first first operation. And then so you've now evolved and you're using Iridium and Iridium satellites, and that links quite nicely back to your your earlier days in consultancy. What was the kind of moment that you realized that you could use Iridium or how did that go about? Yeah, well, it's uh, yeah, no, it's a classic example of you can't join the dots going forward. You know, I, I sort of, I was, I knew all about the Iridium work from my time at Cambridge Consultants. To be honest with you, I never thought that I would, I would then apply it. But as we started talking about what we wanted to do in oil and gas, what ranges we wanted to fly over, the requirement to be able to fly anywhere in the world, it suddenly dawned on me that you know you needed a satellite communication network and as we started to look into it you realized that a lot of the sort of cost and complexity in in incredibly capable military systems is all driven by that satellite network you know by the 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 complexity and scale of that satellite network and because i knew intimately what we'd done at at cambridge consultants and and the work we'd done around iridium i knew from the starting point that it's a very elegant compact system i knew that there's some, some architectural things about it as a low earth orbit system you've got very short uh, paths in that system so it's low latency i knew there's some stuff about it that would make it very attractive but you know it's a relatively low bandwidth and so you have to design your whole system around that and so quite quickly as we started looking at it we realized that this was probably one of the sort of uh, the fundamental building blocks of being able to do a really robust, reliable, but economically viable system. And you have to build everything around that. And that's where we started. And so within that now is use Iridium. And like you were mentioning there before, it has its advantages, but also has its disadvantages. I think one of the ones we've discussed before is the lag and it's not immediate response. So how did you get around that? Yeah, so you 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 just have to design your system. Your system has to be able to tolerate um, some small degree of interruption. So you need lots of reliability, and you need to tolerate a small bit of interruption. And your system, the control of the system, needs to know what it does if it loses, you know, loses a few seconds of of communication. And again, that's what I mean about it drives your whole. It drives your whole architecture. It drives your whole safety case. None of these things are, they're all an interrelated system that has to work with, with, with the next bit. And, and the actual aircraft itself. So what's the development on that been like? You didn't just go out and decide straight away, oh, this is, this is what we need and this is what we, how did, how did that how did that go about? That's uh, that's not me at all. I take my hat off to the team. My, my team had the sort of mental discipline to actually work out what it is you want to do. Unsurprisingly, what that does is it drives you to actually quite a conventional aircraft design. So it's pretty obvious in the pictures of our aircraft that, you know, they are low aspect ratio aircraft. They are uh, quite a conventional configuration with a puller uh, internal combustion engine. They're, they're not very uh high tech looking if you will and that's because actually they're workhorses they're designed to operate in challenging conditions they need to operate in big crosswinds they need to be easy to repair 
They need to be able to take different payloads in different conditions. And actually, when you when you constrain yourself with a real customer requirement, um, you you kind of end up with a you end up with an aircraft that that is quite conventional. It's kind of the same thing you see in manned aviation. When you put the constraints on, you you end up with an aircraft that looks like lots of other aircraft. And so I don't think it is a great people often say, well, it looks very different from a UAV. I think it's it looks very like a real aircraft. And that's what you're that's what you're seeing. Yeah. And that's that's what I find out quite interesting actually is the way that you've approached your business and it's like fascinating and how you've developed is you had that first use case. And you had the problem and you said, okay, what's what's the minimum viable product to solve this problem? And you've come up with all these solutions and some of them, I guess there has been innovation, for example, the use of the Iridium network, but then in places that you don't need to innovate, for example, the, the aircraft design, you haven't because it's it's it seems that it's not necessary. And so why innovate when it's not necessary? Just focus on the bits that you do. Yeah, and, and and I mean the other consideration is there is it's, and and look, this goes against everything to do with my my history as an aeronautical engineer. Look, I love aircraft design, and I would love to get involved in that. But there's an enormous number of incredibly talented people doing some really clever stuff in unmanned aircraft design at the moment, uh, and and we need to focus, and and we're focusing on what what our customers want as the end result. And what are the things that facilitate that? And actually, in that hierarchy, the the aircraft design ends up as being pretty simple. You know, there's quite, as you say, there's quite a lot of innovations on it, but they are to serve a purpose, to hit a certain fuel uh, range or or something like that. Yeah. And so you you successfully did your your test flight in 2017 with Centrica. That all got approved, and then you signed a contract. Was it with BP and the Shetland for methane detection? Is that right? Yeah, so BP have done a lot of thinking about methane detection, and they're they're very forward thinking about about some of the challenges of verifying your methane emission outputs, and they've come out very publicly and talked about what they're doing to do that. And what they ended up asking us to do, and they they had a lot of insight into this, and they asked us whether we could fly a, a specific sensor from a US company called CCOPS. They CCOPS uh, makes a a, a very high-performing, lightweight methane sensor. They asked us to work with them to actually develop a, an accurate methane measurement service. So what we did is we 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 demonstrated that service first back in 2019. So we flew out of Shetland, out to one of their assets west of Shetland, Clare, um, and we showed that you could you could make a methane detection uh, measurement. Using using an unmanned aircraft with the whole thing being controlled is that something you still do now? That methane detection for BP? Yes. So so what we what we subsequently did is went out in 2020, actually right in the middle of, of all of the sort of COVID lockdowns, uh, and went out and actually made multiple measurements of all of their west of Shetland assets. So Clare, Clare Ridge, Glen Lyon, and and made you know basically spent you know up to an hour on station at each facility making very very accurate methane uh measurements um so that's a sort of that's an ongoing work uh work with bp yeah and and so with those where are the pilots based when you're going out to these oil rigs and measuring the methane so when we run that operation today the pilots are based at at the airfield so they will they will get the aircraft ready um they'll prep it up and then they will 
take it off and fly that whole operation from one of our ground stations at the airfield. Can you just walk me through actually what the typical day of methane detection looks like? So so it's I guess the thing that's fascinating about it is it's all it's all about running a integrated process with um with your customer. So you know there's at the beginning of the day like any other uh, flight operation there's there's flight planning there's looking at weather there's coordinating with the offshore assets and there's usually uh, a safety meeting with the offshore asset first thing just to make sure everyone is clear what is what is going on um the team will then run through like any other aircraft a set of pre-flight checks um so they're sort of laminated cards that they're working through that they check off um, they load that into our computer system so that we can see that each stage of the process has been checked off. Um, they will then um, they will then run some ground tests on the aircraft. So the aircraft have quite sophisticated condition monitoring. So they are looking, you know, the, the, the condition monitoring systems are looking for any sort of edge cases, anything anomalous on the aircraft. They will check it as a pilot would normally, you know, their visual checks, all that kind of thing. It's everything you would expect to see, Nick, of a of a of a flight. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean it is, it is, it is absolutely and you know, one of our pilots, one of our pilots was an A340 uh first officer. So, you know, for Virgin Atlantic. So he he, <laughs> you know, it's quite interesting getting his comparison of, you know, what are we doing relative to what he would do uh, with his with his Airbus when he when he was ready to take sort of several hundred passengers in it, and it's pretty similar. They will then take the aircraft off. They will can do more checks at that point. So they will check that the aircraft, like a commercial airliner, climbed out in a predictable way. That the profile of the engine performance is what we expect it to be. And will, will they be watching this from a, a van, or is it a, they set up a screen in every airport that you go to? How does that work? So we have a we have a central control system. So everything lo- downloads um, to the cloud. So our the flight team will monitor it from the ground station. So they have monitors that they can see everything going on there. But our engineering team um, can log in from headquarters and they can see all of that data and they can analyze all that data so you know my my technical director and head of software were both uh, spent many years at mclaren and and managed that whole centralization of the formula one process and they you know they are implementing that same type of discipline about how we run run an operation in a safe and controlled way and um, to our flying operations that's fascinating so how many pilots do you have actually at the airport flying the aircraft or how does that team look like? And then you have a central team based down in Hampshire where you are, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So you have a you have a team of two that will look after the flight operation. And and you know, in practice, there is a pilot flying it. And in practice, like a commercial airliner, they are largely on autopilot, but they are supervising that. And there is a second person, predominantly for the sort of reasons of safety duplication, safe handling of aircraft and things like that. So it's mainly a one-man operation. And then much as you would see in manned aviation, the the, the the sort of engineering team in Hampshire is is there to support. You know, they can log into the aircraft, they can see anything there, they can talk to the flight team about, you know, is there anything that they should be interested in? And they can just support them and provide them information as is required. So it's now in the air flying around. And how is what's your typical flight length or how long have you flown it for? Um, so the aircraft will fly for five, six hours. Typical flight might be four hours. Yeah. What speed is it traveling at? It's 
about 70 or 80 knots. Yes, it's not 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 huge, but fast enough that it can penetrate into sort of decent headwind. Or a realistic North Sea headwind probably is better. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. How do you ensure that you don't, if, if for example, an aircraft flies past and stuff and you're not colliding into anything, how, how is it making sure that that doesn't happen? So the, the flight team are a trained radio operators and they are talking to air traffic control. Air traffic control can see where the aircraft is. We can see other aircraft through the various various sensors on our aircraft. And so through a combination of air traffic control and then what our pilots can see electronically on their screens, we're able to to, to sort of manoeuvre around other aircraft and, and safely move around other aircraft. That's really cool. So on top of the, the methane detection, so that's a big part of what you do. How often are you flying out to do the methane detection at the moment? Um, pretty busy. So if team team went up to Shetland actually today. Um, we have a number of operations in Shetland. We then move back down to Central North Sea. So, you know, it's pretty it's a pretty steady business. And the nature of it is it is it is predictable. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's attractive about it is it's a it's a predictable planned activity. And so we can sort of coordinate with our customers and, and fit it in when it is best suits them. Yeah. This is what actually I find really amazing, right? Is a lot of people visualize drones being these huge sexy not saying that what you're doing isn't really no, exciting, no, it's but right. it's not like, it's it, it's just doing a job. And and you're out there and you've done the first flight, you've done the second flight, and now it's just a team going out. And, and just like they would fly an airplane, they're just flying a drone and they're doing exactly the same thing. If you look at the operating costs of if you were using this by aircraft, you've, you've saving about 90% reduction in operating costs. Yeah, you make a bit, you, you know, it is a more... It's, it's just a smaller, more compact system. So it is, you know, it's if you can do the job with an unmanned aircraft, there are less potential costs around the actual equipment. There's less cost around waiting on weather. You can see as we as we start to centralise that control more and more, um, you know, we've got to have less people actually at the site. And so you, you can see it's just a more efficient uh, activity. And you're absolutely right. It is a lot of it is about process and you know so we we do some incredible stuff on technology to make this all possible but actually it's a lot about following through procedures there's stuff like you know about crew resource management how you get people to a place with enough sleep that they can then go and do a proper day's operation all of that stuff has to be in place people have to have the right certificates at the right time and i think that's the bit that that maybe gets lost in some of the sort of excitement as you say about a sort of a new configuration of unmanned aircraft and so you also, was it last year or the year before that you signed a contract and now doing oil spill response? No, it was probably two, two years ago. So oil spill response is a really interesting client for us because they are one of the premier providers of, of, of general sort of uh, yeah, oil spill and, and general support for operators. Um, and they've always had a very strong aviation component to that. So they've operated 727, Hercules, smaller twin-engine spotter aircraft. So they're an incredibly thoughtful aviation team. And they, you know, they immediately recognize that that ability to do some of that activity, not all of it, but some of that activity with an unmanned aircraft, a smaller, more compact unmanned aircraft, is uh, really valuable. But I guess the thing that's interesting is it's the opposite end of the spectrum from methane. It's 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 by its nature an emergency, 
and it needs to therefore be mobilised at relatively short time periods. It needs to be anywhere in the country. And so that, from our perspective, that's a really valuable other end of the, it's another bookend in the sort of, in the offshore energy space, because it's the opposite. It's sort of, it's high value, but you need to be able to go tomorrow. And so that tests us at the other end of the spectrum from the sort of predictable. So how would that work is if there was an oil spill anywhere around the UK, you'd have to go and deploy your aircraft and survey where the spill was? How, what, what does that involve? I think their name, they, they do a much broader range of, of support, but yeah, that would be, you know, you would be gathering visual data potentially. You might be doing, depends on the nature of the incident, you might be doing methane detection. So if you've got, uh, there have been incidents in the North Sea where there have been leaks. And actually, one of the big challenges is you want to know how big the leak is, but you don't want to put a person anywhere near it. And actually, you don't want to put an aircraft anywhere near it. And so you get these really tricky standoffs where helicopters sort of have to approach with FLIR cameras and things and try and judge how big the gas cloud is to make some sort of judgment. And so an unmanned aircraft is incredibly well suited to that that type of activity. That's amazing. And this is quite interesting as well, because I had a chat with Centric. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. I have heard of them. Um, They're part of Total AOC, and, and they've been doing quite a lot of work with the police. Yes. And it's exactly the same philosophy you're saying here is, they're not building or using drones to replace helicopters or anything or replace aviation. They're just adding another tool set to everyone's mind and saying, OK, well, in this scenario, for example, if it's gusting wind and pouring with rain, you're probably going to be quite difficult to fly your aircraft. But actually, if you just need to quickly go out and do a quick scoping of the area, it's probably way more convenient and cheaper to just to use your aircraft. And so it's not it's adding rather than fighting. Yeah, absolutely. That is absolutely right. So if you look at Oil Spill Response's fleet, you know, they have aircraft for spraying, dispersants and things like that. Well, you know, we're not there to do that activity. But if you want to, exactly as you say, if you want to go and do that type of emergency methane measurement, or yeah, exactly to your point, if the conditions are really bad and you don't want to endanger a human, in that environment, but it is really urgent. You can run a risk profile with an unmanned system that you cannot do with a manned system. And it's different. It's a different solution that can serve different problems. Yeah, I really enjoy learning about this way because it changed my mindset completely about actually how unmanned airspace is going to evolve. Yeah. And actually, maybe it's an interesting point now to talk about kind of the future developments and what you've been working on, um, because there's a couple of exciting things. So Last year, you flew out to from Land's End to the Isle of Scilly. Yeah. And you did a test flight with um, the, is it the Isle of Scilly Steamships Limited? Yes, the, um, the Isles of Scilly Steamship Company, yes. Can you just walk me through exactly what you did and, and how that's going to evolve? Yeah, so I've said to you before, we're very disciplined about uh, serving a particular customer need. So we've, you know, predominantly focused around the areas like methane, some of the specifics in in offshore energy. Our, our equivalent of landing on Mars is 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 the logistic, you know, unmanned logistics. We absolutely believe that unmanned aircraft have a huge part to play in in the sort of hundred billion pound a year aviation logistics business. But I guess we know enough to realise that that's actually quite a difficult challenge. You know, you are by by focusing on logistics, you're looking at the application with the largest infrastructure rollout on day one. You need the lowest operating costs and you need the highest reliability and weather resilience uh, of any of the applications we've talked about. 
And it's also an incredibly demanding from a regulatory perspective because you're wanting to fly almost everywhere on demand at any time of day or night. So we sort of passionately believe, you can probably tell the way I've described everything in learn by doing. Yep. And we we had this unique opportunity with ours at Silly Steamship Group because they they have run for the last hundred years, they've run pretty much all the freight in and out of the Isles of Scilly. Um, that means everything, you know, Royal Mail, Amazon, NHS, DPD, emergency stuff. You know, if someone urgently needs something, it goes, it typically goes with them. And they they're a kind of mixed mode freight uh provider. So they have they have freight aircraft, they have passenger aircraft where they add freight to those and they have a freight ship and a passenger ship so they've got the whole it's like nick it's like the whole thing but on a on a compact scale yeah and so what we've done with them is we've got into a long-term exclusive partnership with them where we want to introduce that unmanned system into the middle of that and exactly to your point it won't displace either of those things but what it will do is it will serve something something different in the middle um, and we believe by doing that in that full mixed mode freight area, what we'll actually end up with is a blueprint for a much bigger freight opportunity that we can actually demonstrate working day in, day out in different weather conditions. This is amazing, actually. And, and maybe for people who don't know, Land's End uh, Isle of Scilly is it's not, how, how far is it? Uh, it's, it's very short. It's, it's 20 or 30 kilometres. It's not far at all. But basically what you have here is this perfect control environment in terms of it's 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 a short distance it's not lots of competition you've got the perfect test bed to make errors and learn learn by doing in this scenario which is amazing and so your first flight was i think you flew some medical equipment and then coming back you flew some gin and some um flowers right yeah that's absolutely right so we did um yeah, no. So you're, 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 first of all, you're absolutely right. It is a really interesting example because it actually it, it is simpler, but it has everything. So when you're flying, you're flying around manned and freight aircraft. There is military activity there. There's the Trinity House helicopter doing stuff. So it's not, it's not simple, but it's on a scale that you can get your arms around it. And it's a reasonably busy area from a marine traffic point of view as well. So there's quite a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. On the way out, we took COVID tests. I mean, it's sort of relevant at the, at, at the time. And on the way back, we brought back specific island produce. And, and, and the logic there is, is about engaging the community. So we brought back four of the things that, that are sort of uh, important exports. So Silly Isles gin, uh, rum. We brought some clothing back. And then you're absolutely right. Actually, one of the biggest exports from Sillies is, is boxed flowers. And it's time critical. There's value in doing it quickly. And, and so the whole purpose of that is, again, Nick, learn by doing. It's about, you know, actually getting those people to deliver it, understand what it is they want, what's the ideal size, what's the ideal payload. Would it be better if we flew to a different location and picked it up? Would it be better if we dropped off in a different location? You, you, you can see the whole, the whole challenge is there. That's amazing. And so within that specific project, what's kind of the future development? How does that look over the next few years for you? Yeah, so the next step with ours, the Silly Steamship Group, is is actually to put in a, a sustained service. So, you know, a daily service or twice daily service that sits around their other activities, um, specifically with the, the, the objective of refining that understanding of what people really want. 
Um, and, you know, that might drive, that will certainly drive stuff around schedule, around locations you operate to. Um, and, and, and you know, realistically, that is likely to drive a different airframe because, you know, we're likely to be wanting to move different quantities, different weights and things like that. But, but we want to do that by actually providing a, a minimum service to the community where people start to say, oh, if you could do this, this would be really valuable to us. Yeah. So it's adding, it's it's coming up with a problem that it's actually going to solve that's not being solved now is what you're saying. Yeah. It's it's sort of, it's it's what software people would do in A-B testing. You know, it's the, it's, yeah. it's that actually put something in front of people and let them tune it and ask you to do different things and then adapt to deal with what they ask you to do. And and so within the frame of that, how long do you think before there's actually something, a scheduled service going between, is it too early to tell or is it? So the plan is to put that minimum service in later this year to Towards the end of this year, and yeah, you don't know the outcome of that. But my my sense is from from the work we've done to date that, that there is this requirement that, that sits between the ship and the and the aircraft to do urgent delivery. And so I actually think we're quite a lot closer. We're quite close to the place where you've actually got something that is doing on demand, urgent delivery of relatively small items. I don't think that is is far away from a technical or a regulatory perspective and, and maybe if we talk about the other future plans so i see you're actually um a part of the innovation sandbox can you just talk me through that yeah so we've actually we've we've gone through that whole process uh and and what what we worked with the civil aviation authority on was a, basically a more elegant way of operating around other man traffic so we we developed um with nats uh, a, a simplified way of allowing us to operate with with other aircraft, so not having to segregate airspace uh, for our operations. And what we did with the Civil Aviation Authority late last year was we demonstrated that. So we actually went up and flew a series of flights in Scotland where we flew under the direction of a controller. So the controller is asking us to, to manoeuvre different altitudes, different headings. Um, and then we started to do stuff where we had helicopters actually flying at us to check that our TCAS system, our TCAS system and their TCAS system were detecting each other and that the aircraft were automatically separating. We checked all kinds of things about some of our sort of emergency systems. So, you know, if certain systems cut, whether the system the appropriately defaulted, how it changed transponder codes, things like that. So, you know, a, a quite a complicated test program to prove to the Civil Aviation Authority that we had a way of operating safely around manned traffic in, in that environment, in the North Sea environment. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is, it is incredible. We are doing some, you know, we're very privileged to be doing some really special stuff that I think, in, you know, if you look across the rest of the world, people are not doing stuff as, as integrated as, as we're able to do here in the United Kingdom. Yeah, that's crazy. And so... Actually, you mentioned there about TCAS, but does your aircraft have other things? So does it have ADSB? Yes, it does. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it has ADSB, it has a uh, MODAS transponder, and, and it has uh, it has ability to to manoeuvre, uh, to, to, you know, it has automatic facilities to manoeuvre and detect and avoid. That's amazing. And so, well, you also mentioned there about the altitude and you were able to change altitude. Typically, what altitude do you, do you fly at and, and how much does that have to change? Well, you need that. It's important to have the flexibility when you're operating around other aircraft. It, is, it becomes critical that you can operate at whatever altitude that the controller wants you at because there are, we will typically 
for obvious reasons, fly low and underneath everyone else because, you know, there's some obvious logic about just being underneath all the other operations. But it is, you know, obviously it's conceivable that you might have a scenario where you want the unmanned aircraft to operate above other manned traffic. And so that facility needs to be in place. And so we can, you know, we can fly much, much higher if that is required. And so a final one for me, actually, is just your next segments or what do you see the focus of FlyLogics going forward over the next few years? We talked about the, the, the services into the sort of offshore UK energy market. So that, that is our anchor. That is the thing that we have a, an incredibly supportive regulator. It's a sensible environment to be, to be operating in from a sort of safety perspective. Um, so that that's our anchor, and that will be a lot of our investment of time and effort in the next in the next three or four years. But what we're naturally seeing, as you would expect, is all of our customers are international by their nature, and they are all asking us to start to implement these services overseas. You know, Civil Aviation Authority is very well respected. Nats are very well respected, and so being able to, to go to other countries respectfully and saying, look, this is how we do it here, here's a sort of template, if you will, um, has certainly accelerated a lot of conversations. It, you know, it means that, that other regulators around the world are receptive and we get a very productive discussion very, very quickly. Um, so there's an internationalization of that service and everything about our system is designed to be internationalized. So, you know, the, the architecture of it. And then there is this just natural progression, as we've talked about, into bigger, more demanding services. So if you imagine replacing the transit van as the, the ultimate end goal in logistics, um, there are there are several things along the path to that, you know, as we talked about higher value, hot shotting logistics, and then perhaps getting into, you know, bigger, bigger scale of that. So it's basically those two axes, Nick. Yeah. Internationalization and expanding the range of services. Yeah. Now this has been fascinating because I think it's completely changed my mind and how I perceive drones going forward. And so from this, I'm now looking and be like, well, logistics is probably not going to be in the next 10 years or maybe five years. Maybe it maybe will be, but, but actually there's a, there's a ton of other stuff that is before that. And now it's me trying to understand what is before we get to logistics. And I'm sure there's lots of other use cases before logistics, which will be far more valuable than logistics itself. Yeah, I, I think that is a really good characterization. There, people are absolutely right that that is the end state, which makes the biggest difference from a environmental impact. It makes the biggest difference from a sort of economic impact. But you're right; there are just huge numbers of services that are currently done by manned aircraft. That you know, when fifty percent of search and rescue shouts are search or a pure search operation. Um, and and you know you're you're effectively flying a camera system with a with a three man crew and a twin turbine five thousand horsepower aircraft at three and a half thousand dollars an hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that would be that would probably or would undoubtedly in in the future be better served by an unmanned aircraft. That's amazing. How can people learn more about FlyLogic? So we we have a little bit of information on our website that just talks about. Uh, what we're doing and and we are fairly you know you'll, you'll see a reasonable amount on our linkedin feed and in press coverage um and you know i'd invite people to reach out if, if there's something that they, that they want to talk to us about on our inquiries uh, email amazing thank you very much charles this has been brilliant great and it's great to learn more about you and i look forward to watching you this year thanks charles i hope you enjoyed this episode 
I'm currently on the hunt for more guests. So if you know anyone who would like to be on the show, then please send me an email. All my details are in the show notes below. Next week's podcast is with PayCargo. PayCargo are revolutionizing the payment process in air cargo. Subscribe now so you don't miss it.